This is an ABC podcast. What do you remember about your first love? I remember blue eyes and freckles and walking around an ancient city at night, talking about things that I definitely don't remember now. Hi, I'm Melanie Tate and this is Fictions. On today's episode in our Untrue Romance series, we're exploring first love in all its complicated, heartbreaking glory. Because let's be honest, it's a lucky person among us who doesn't finish up their first love without, well, their first big heartbreak. Our first story is from Rowana Gonzalez and strap in because you're going to be on a bus, so you need to physically strap in, but you're also going to be feeling a lot of feelings. It was early December. The streets of Sydney, once bridled with jacaranda, were now mournful at year's end. Saira had been to a funeral every month that year. People from her seniors group in Strathfield, relatives in Bombay, school friends she had hugged at recess in a different century. They were leaving her without so much as a parting wave. She had erected her own fortifications against the punch of such betrayals, but they were crumbling. First, a dead marriage, then a dead husband, now children in their forties still alive and kicking around the hips of Sydney. Saira's youngest, Yasmin, was constantly trying to prove to her eastern suburbs mother-in-law that she too could be a faithful reproduction of England. Yasmin wanted to catch up with old friends over high tea, without a toddler at her heels. Saira, disinterested but dutiful, agreed to mind the little one for a couple of hours. Saira usually caught the train from Strathfield to the city whenever Yasmin wanted time off. But that summer morning, arch support in place inside her sketchers, armpits moist with aspiration, Saira decided to get off at Newtown and catch a bus. Her knees had been predicting their own downfall for some time now and she wanted something other than funerals before she too succumbed without a parting wave. So she crossed the road and got on the first bus that stopped, bendy and bulging with possibility. As she stepped up onto the bus, her knees flared like a fire, but Saira did not grimace. She tapped her opal card, nodded at the driver, and turned towards the back of the bus to look for a seat. The bus was crowded, full of students trying to get to university, office workers tight with tension. As Saira surveyed this tangle of youth and haste, she heard someone shout, Back door, please! She looked towards the voice. A woman was impatient to get out. The woman's anxiety about the unopened back door seeped into the other passengers. As Saira watched this woman, her gaze was suddenly arrested by an unexpected sight. She saw a man also waiting to leave the bus. It was someone Saira knew. It was someone who made her heart skip all the way back to 1968. It was Yusuf. She would never forget those shoulders, that neck. He still had sideburns. 
They were students together at St. Xavier's College in Bombay. He had been an atheist then, but brought biryani and shir korma to college the day after the Eid holiday to share with her. Saira and Yusuf were both mathematics majors with deep roots in Bindi Bazaar. Saira felt, with the certainty of youth, that they would grow old together. But he had wanted to stay in India and contribute to the country's development, while she was keen on Cambridge. He had also wanted lots of children. We will make a cricket team, he said on the 3rd of December after prayers as they ran up from the college chapel, impatient for the privacy of the rooftop. She took his hand and hoisted herself up the top step. Later, they walked along Marine Drive on the edge of their city by the sea. They sipped coconut water, sensed the receding tide. He had wanted her to keep the baby. It was already too late for that, she told him, as the grey waves spat out their derision. She kept to herself the details of the termination. From then on, the world began to spin faster. She was surprised when he accepted a scholarship to Princeton. She refused to marry him in a hurry before he left. The severing was swift and merciless. She did not respond to his letters. She did not talk to friends about him. The next month, she defied her parents, deceived herself and married her next door neighbor, Theo, a welder's apprentice with a job offer in Kuwait. Yusuf, she called. He didn't hear her. He didn't move to the slip in her voice. Maybe it was not Yusuf. Maybe, as usual, she was getting carried away. No, it was him. That side profile was imprinted on her brain, still alive in her mind's eye after 50 years. It was unspoilt by the bristle of marriage and children who continued to be children well into their own middle age. What was he doing in Sydney? Possibly visiting one of his grandkids? He was still alive. Back door, please! More voices rose to get the attention of the driver. Yusuf, she called with urgency, hoping to catch his attention before he got out. He was caught up in the chorus of rising intensity. Back door, please, he called along with the others. But the bendy bus was crowded and the driver had not yet heard. Then, Yusuf, she called louder still, drawing on her insistent Bombay voice, the voice she used to call to him in their youth. Perhaps it was the arc of longing in her voice that startled him amidst the rising pleas of the other passengers. Yusuf went still, as if finally hearing a call he had been awaiting for 50 years. He turned, first his body and then his face towards her, as if unable to comprehend what he had just heard trying to recover months, years, decades, in that turn from door to door. His eyes were upon her now. They were both back on the rooftop of St. Xavier's College on the 3rd of December, half a century ago. Not yet the weather for sweaters, but definitely the time for plans. Back door, please. The appeals grew louder. The driver was still busy with the passengers getting on and had not yet heard. 
But Saira heard Yusuf's body crack open towards her from down the aisle of the crowded Bendy bus. There was so much to say. If she were to survive this bus trip, stop her face from turning into a monsoon, she knew that she must focus on the here and the now. She gestured to him, mouthing the words, Where are you going? Town hall, he replied through the noise. This is not the right stop, she said, suddenly lit by the possibility of saving him, of making amends. He must be new to Sydney. Her phone rang. Her daughter Yasmin was impatient, keen not to be late for the high tea booking. Saira took her eyes off Yusuf, found her phone, put it on silent and let it ring out. Then she looked back at him again when she saw that the driver had finally opened the back door. But Yusuf had stepped away from it, made room for the others to get out. Then he began to find his way towards her, entering the lacuna around Saira that had grown more desolate with each passing decade. As the vexations of youth raged around them, they stood facing each other silently. She saw the furrows along his forehead, but brightness in his eyes, perhaps from new grandchildren, a girl maybe, maybe twins. She wished she had worn her red top with the shoulder pads, but how was she to know that time would loop around unpredictably today of all days? She hoped the sweat patches under her arms were not visible to him. A seat became vacant at Missenden Road. Yusuf gestured to Saira to sit, but she needed to grasp at some straw of pride. I'm fine, she said, even though her knees were smashed. At Sydney Uni, the bus emptied out and Saira and Yusuf found seats next to each other. How to begin an accounting of loss spread over half a century. They looked at each other, then they looked away, then again they turned each about to say something, each at the last minute, holding their tongue. Opal cards and tickets, please. Saira was grateful for this interruption as she and Yusuf sat in the debris of a lifetime apart. She wanted honey to pour from her lips. Instead, there was only the aftertaste of blood and bone from decades of wishful thinking. Saira dug into her bag for her opal card. It was not in the side pocket where she usually put it. She searched further as the ticket inspector turned to Yusuf and held a hand out. Saira saw Yusuf's pension card in his wallet. He was a local. There would certainly be proof of an immutable marriage lurking in there too. He saw her looking. She averted her eyes. The ticket inspector said, Getting off at town hall? Yes, Saira said. She was about to add, picking up my granddaughter. But she stopped herself. It would be a betrayal of Yusuf all over again. Let Yusuf confess to his own slippages first. Her phone began to vibrate in her handbag. Please, answer it, said Yusuf. I don't mind. It's only my... My daughter, she said. My youngest. As she ignored the phone once more. His face relaxed towards her. She saw this as an indication of a softening, a willingness to listen, an inclination towards mercy. And you? she asked, keen to know where he stood in the present convolutions of life and yearning. And I what? Yusuf said. 
How many children? Yusuf said, I don't have children. The ticket checker was waiting for Saira to produce her opal card. Yusuf said, I never married. The world shifted for Saira. It began to turn on a different axis now, slowing down as all that was sharp suddenly blurred and came up to crush her like a giant wave. How long have you been in Sydney? She asked him. Yusuf said, Forty years, almost. I've lived in Strathfield all this time. He kept looking at her. Saira looked away. She began to massage her knees. It was all she could do to keep from weeping. Ma'am, your opal card, please. Saira finally found the opal card. The ticket inspector scanned it. Do you have your pension card on you, ma'am? Saira began to rummage around in her handbag. A minute passed. Five decades passed. Then Yusuf's voice. Sorry, officer, we were in a hurry today. We left it at home. We will bring it next time. The bus was moving slowly. Saira looked up from her bag. She looked at Yusuf. The world was alight now. Broadway was positively shimmering and the UTS building, it was humanity's beacon of twice-blessed hope. This bus will terminate at Town Hall Station, the driver said. Saira shifted in her shoes to make sure the arch support was in its proper place. The driver turned off the ignition and the bus exhaled with relief. This moment was for the bold. The seeking of mercy would follow later. Let's go for a walk, she said. Another December, a century halved. He held out his hand as she stepped down from the back door of the Bendy bus. She was about to refuse, but then she saw his face, new like joy is new. She took his hand, let him feel her weight as she left the bus behind. They walked slowly, past Martin Place, past Wynyard Station, down towards Circular Quay, falling into the embrace of a city that brought them together from the edge of one continent to the edge of another. They talked of the shops that crowded the streets. They compared diabetes medications and the bedside manner of their specialists. Let the past wait. There would be time for an accounting later, once the present was properly explored. Sarah didn't care about her sweaty armpits anymore. She was with Yusuf, her Yusuf, and he was holding her hand. Before them, the harbour twinkled. The tide was most certainly coming in, embracing the shore once more. A new wave was unfurling in this place, this rejuvenating place, this gibbous, forgiving, rejoicing, other city by the sea. Backdoor Plays was written and performed by Rowena Gonzalez. Our next story is from Nicola Harrison. It's going to be performed by Meredith Eastman and Glenn Hazeldean. This time it's a different type of ambience, a more, should I say, beachy kind of ambience.
here it is. Hang on. Cockatoo Sands. Caravan Park? He lives in the van park? All right, Rosie. You can deal with it. No big deal. Not his fault that you thought he meant one of those new villas up on the cliff. He never said villa. You thought villa. That's your stuff. And the caravan park, well, it's fine. And he was the hottest guy in high school. And he messaged you. He wanted to get in touch after all these years. Hottest guy in high school. Remember that. Bo Sanderson. Seriously hot. Everyone wanted him. You got him for a minute. Forget the van park. This guy contacted you, not the other way around. Hi. I'm here to see Bo, Bo Sanderson. Uh, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, van 74, love. Down on your right. I'll open the gate for you. Oh, they are quite... Well, they're antiques, really, these vans. God, that one's certainly at a jaunty angle, isn't it? It's going to fall into the hydrangeas. Why would you put seven Australian flags on your microscopic lawn? So many tiny gardens and so many rusty bikes. <laughs> oh, there's a guy riding one. Without a seat. Riding in Ugg boots. That takes foot strength. And with the lorikeet balancing on your shoulder. Oh, is a sign on the van part of the deal? No shirt, no shoes, no worries. Me casa, Sue casa. Kevin Bivs. Navarak. Is that caravan backwards? This must be just a pit stop on the road of life for him, surely. He's only just got back. Just think of late 80s beau. That skin, that smile, that body. I wonder if he'll remember the 17 times in one night. Okay, van 74, here we are. Hey, 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 Rosie! Oh, good to see you. Give me a hug. Oh, look at you. You look so luscious. Luscious. That's a new one. Well played, mate. Bo, it's really you. I mean, it's probably him. I hope it's him, because if it's not, that would be incredibly creepy. Was he always this small? Is this vegan yoga bantam the same guy I worshipped? I think I recognise the jawline. Maybe not the hottest guy anymore, but still possibly charismatic in a man-with-a-salt-lamp kind of way. You look amazing! <laughs> you have a man bun! <laughs> what a statement! So, what do you think of the van? Uncle Tim left it to me in his will. Oh, wow! That was really nice of him. I love that mauve stripe across the van. Very sweet. And wow, Bo, absolute beachfront. Tim scored the best spot, didn't he? But I thought you hated this town. You said you wouldn't be seen dead here ever again. I think the exact words you used at the airport were, 
that this place is only for guys who peaked at high school wearing wraparound sunglasses with five AVOs out against them. I'm really trying to get over myself, Rosie. I can't believe I stayed away so long, to be honest with you. I can't be a man-child forever. We're in our 50s, right? Mum and Dad are so much older. I know I've only got so much time left with them. This is where our shit gets real. Am I right? Yep. Glad to hear your mum and dad are still okay. Shit gets real, all right, with a man bun. And really, how lucky were we, Rosie, to grow up with all of this? I can see why so many people love it around here, the nature. It's just incredible. The sea, rock pools, kangaroos hopping around at night. I get woken up by the black cockatoos. Has it ever occurred to you that they've got an Australian accent? It's that sound, that nasality. Sounds like Australia. And did you know about those sharks that lie on top of each other in stacks? Right there, just metres away in that lagoon. There's a giant wild place right outside my caravan. Yes, we had a beached whale here last summer. Stink lasted for weeks. Well, come in. I'll give you the three-second tour. It's so cute. Tim's curtains? Yep, 1969. Do you want a kombucha? I still make my own. You were the kombucha man before it was a thing. I can still picture those scobies in your dad's garage, like jellyfish made of socks floating in jars. I can hardly even fit under this tiny table. Just how minuscule were the people in 1969? I'm not going to be able to get out. Woman dies wedged under caravan table, right near where beached whale was found in 2020. Mmm, these soy sausages are really nice. (laughs) Being here reminds me so much of being a kid. There's something really sweet about it. It's like a dollhouse. Hey? A real dollhouse. Or the Barbie camper van. You're like Ken. I mean, you know, Ken and Barbie Ken, but you cook. Soya sausages and kombucha. (laughs) But I always felt more like Skipper. And now I feel like Skipper, but Skipper is 50. Do you remember her? Barbie's younger sister with the more realistic figure. Ah. I always wanted more for her. Skipper takes charge. She gets out of the van and away from Barbie and Ken, sets up her own real estate agency or something. Right. What are you saying? You sound unhinged. What straight man on earth or any planet would even remember Barbie and Skipper? Hey, here's to us. It's great to see you after all these years. Yeah, cheers. Really interesting kombucha. Is that star anise I can taste? Ginger, turmeric and cloves. It's anti-inflammatory like you wouldn't believe. You'll feel five years younger after this. What a trip seeing you, Rosie. I'm so glad you wanted to come down. We were good together, weren't we? It was just a moment in time for us, but it was definitely memorable. Do you remember the night we did it 17 times? Uh Uh-huh. 
Yep. Have not forgotten that night. <laughs> Ouch. But also great. I felt so wanted. High school seems a really, really long time ago right now, doesn't it? <laughs> what have you been doing all this time? Well, I design kids' parks. <laughs> That's kind of great. Parks are so different now. The slides aren't silver in 1,000 degrees. My daughter's 18, so I'm getting my life back. And Tom, he's still a dickhead. <laughs> well... I have to say, I still think you are so beautiful, Rosie. And you have grown into this amazing woman. You are like, you're like that heliconia right there, right outside. You have blossomed, my friend. Oh, come on, Bo. You don't need to say that. <laughs> I think I'm blushing. Am I really falling for this shtick? He has got nice teeth. Uh-oh, he's coming around. Oh, this seems to be happening. Why not? It might be fun. Hmm. He's still a good kisser, thank God. Bo, hang on for a tick. Shall we take this over to the bed? I changed the sheets just in case. Can I help you with that? What a beautiful bra. What do you call that? Sage green? <laughs> so many hooks. Why are you staring at me like that? This is probably strange timing, but... I'm glad you like the kombucha. Because I do need investors. It's just a start-up, and, and we've always had such a great connection, and it's excellent for weight loss. An initial 20 grand, that's all I need. Oh, no. This isn't love or lust. This is a cash grab, a kombucha investment, and not even a PowerPoint presentation. He thinks a roll in a caravan's enough to get me in. He's got another thing coming. I'm a serious person, not some starry-eyed girl he can wangle his way into parting with her money. And did he say weight loss? Rosie, what's wrong? Sorry, Bo, but this isn't... I, I have another... I need to get out of here. Damn this bra. I'm going to crash down these tiny little stairs. Where's my keys? Bye, Bo. I've offended you. I'm sorry, Rosie. Look, it's not about the money. I just thought you'd understand. I do understand, but I'm not your sugar mummy or your agave mummy. And I don't even like kombucha. It just tastes like bad wine, of which I know a bit about because even though you poured the wine that night from your mother's crystal goblets, it was pretty clear even then that it came straight from a goon bag. Oh, and that's 17 times. I faked it at least 15. These vans are sort of sweet, really. Stripes, soft blue zigzags, sherbety lemon, minty green. It's like the 1950s never went away. And look, that woman there. She's got a lovely shirt to match. Oh, and look what she's done with the succulents. Some of these vans do look kind of charming. Kombucha investment. I don't think so. I'm going to buy a caravan. White with a mint green stripe? Hmm. Pale pink with rose pink stripe. I'm going to need a tow bar. 
A Visit to Cockatoo Sands was written by Nicola Harrison and performed by Meredith Eastman and Glenn Hazeldean. Our final story takes us within the belly of the beast of first love, when Lech Blaine fell in love as a teenager in rural Queensland for the very first time. It's performed by Toby Francis. It was the winter of swine flu when Michael Jackson swallowed so many sleeping pills that he didn't wake up and I fell in love with the apocalyptic convictions of a boy about to graduate from puberty. I'd first met Frida at a party on the back patio of a McMansion in Toowoomba. I have a question, she said. Don't be offended. Go for it. What the hell is Lek short for? Frida was third-generation Lebanese, olive-skinned and long-limbed with a billowing brunette bun. Expensive dentists and chiropractors had rectified her teeth and posture to perfection, but her gaze was naturally amazing. Dark brown irises were guarded by thick black eyebrows conveying equal amounts of hardness and ardour. Nothing, I said. I'm named after Lech Valenza. I don't know him, said Frida. What's his claim to fame? Frida had a mole on the right cheek. A small face peddled a medley of emotions. Cringing eyes and grimacing lips gave a deeper importance to her grins and guffaws. The animation was contagious. The old Polish president, I said, winner of the 1983 Nobel Peace Prize brought down the Soviet Union. Is that ringing any bells? Air hissed through Frida's lips and she was breathless. That sound. It was the opposite of sorrow, skittling a different innocence. I wanted to make her cry with laughter like my life depended on it. He sounds like a top bloke, she said. We were both named after famous people. Her, Frida Kahlo, me, Lech Valenza. But she could discriminate between Mozart and Beethoven, a Picasso and Matisse. I was an enfant terrible of the western suburbs who grew up in a series of pubs across country Queensland. The second time I kissed Frida was on a Saturday night. Our lips were blue from vodka cruises, two atheists on the way to debate gay marriage with Christians at the Australian Gospel Music Festival. Who do you want to be when you grow up? I asked. Not what? An appropriate faux pas given the kinetic intimacy between us. I want to be the female Philip Glass, said Frida. Philip who? I asked. Glass, the composer and pianist. You know so many big words, Mr Blaine, but deep down, you're still a Philistine. Freedom remained undecided about the practicality of piano in the face of rising sea levels and Israeli occupations of the West Bank. Anywho, that's a little bit about the adversity of being Frieda. Tell me about Lech Blaine. Who do you want to be? Much of my untamed youth had been spent translating speech into plainer language or blunting my sense of fraudulence with alcohol. Now I was overcome with the pleasure of speaking to another person in the native tongue of my internal monologue. I want to write the great Australian novel... I said, or be the Prime Minister. I can't decide. It changes depending on the day. You can't be an artist and a politician, cackled Frida. Why not? Popularity is the enemy of art, she said. I kissed her impulsively on the lips. Neither of us blinked. Wet bitumen glittered with the white headlights of a maxi-taxi en route from dull suburbs to violent nightclubs and the red taillights of a lonesome motorist driving north to nowhere. 
Frida squeezed my skinny fingers. You're an excellent person, she said. It's so nice knowing you. For once I was a smooth peg in a round hole. The skipping needle of my soul slipped onto the groove of a new existence. Frida agreed to see a movie with me before exam block, but one of my classmates tested positive for swine flu. St Mary's boys went into a two-week quarantine. I was the only student who wasn't celebrating. We might have to permanently delay that date, texted Frida. We can die of swine flu together, I replied. It'll be Shakespearean. At the end of June, St Mary's students were emancipated from quarantine, and conspiracy theories about Michael Jackson's fatal overdose replaced hoaxes about swine flu on the front page of the local newspaper. I took Frida to see the movie adaptation of Disgrace by J.M. Kotze, trying to prove that I was cultured enough to be a boyfriend. A movie about rape, she whispered. Such a sweet guy. Kotze won the Nobel Prize, I said. That's not going to get you laid, she said. Call me naive, but I didn't think getting laid was seriously on Frida's agenda. Afterwards, two intellectual hoons did laps of the city. We bought Oreo McFlurries from the drive-thru en route to Picnic Point, a popular kissing spot on the crest of the Great Dividing Range. The red light blinking above the Australian flag looked like a beacon of possibility. I was a latter-day Jay Gatsby, that famous fraud, craving the saving grace of a giddy rich kid from the eastern suburbs. Frida squinted at the Australian flag through the misted windscreen. I love a sunburnt country, she sighed ironically. I leaned over to meet Frida's mouth with mine, lips salty from popcorn and tongues sweetened by ice cream. A moment frozen in time along with all my sorrows. But the romantic atmosphere was eroded by a Subaru WRX ripping a burnout towards the sinkhole of East Creek. Let's go home, she said, before my parents get back. We returned to the eastern hinterland. The hallways were lined with portraits of Frida's guardians, nuclear and beautiful. The difference between them and my own split-up parents was less about assets than their haircuts and voting patterns, grooming rituals and dietary intakes that suggested better mental health and higher life expectancy. Their type-A daughter sat down at the piano in the living room and banged out Gymnopédie No. 1 by Eric Satie like it was Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. The melody plucked at something tender in my stomach. I've got no idea what I'm listening to, I said, but that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Truly. Frida led me to her bedroom by the hand. She peeled off my borrowed polo shirt and pushed me against the satin sheets. Now her t-shirt and jeans were gone, revealing a cream bra, and then... No briefs. Do you have a condom? She asked nonchalantly. The confidence of her longing astounded me. I'd assumed Frida was a virgin. She assumed that I wasn't. We were both wrong. I hadn't been undressed in front of someone sober since my rugby league days. No, no, I said. I didn't think the rebel without a rubber, she said, snickering. Frida pulled standby contraception from her drawer. The expert turned the lights off before removing my chinos and jocks. She directed me at different angles and speeds than the ones depicted in the hardcore porn videos I grew up studying on my older brother's computers. This signalled the end of twin innocences. Death at the end of autumn, sex at the start of winter. In the prime of my youth, I found out the truth of their clout in less time than it takes for a drought to break. 
was incredible, I said. I like it when you smile at me like that, she said. When am I not smiling? I asked defensively. Sometimes I'm not sure if you really mean it. Frida and I lay together touching and kissing each other with persistent lips and amazed gazes like we'd just invented sex. I hope you don't think that I'm too clingy, she said with an uncharacteristically sincere voice. But I love you, like Blaine. My life was finally living up to the hype of literature. I love you too, I said dumbfounded and slightly irritated that Frida had been courageous enough to say what I'd been delaying until her reciprocation was a fait accompli. I've never met anyone like you. Great, said Frida. I'm officially dating a St Mary's boy. My mother will be mortified. Which reminds me, you need to go home. That night, I drove back triumphantly to the pedestrian west. Demisters whispering against translucent windscreens, Billy Jean blaring from the 24-hour vigil on FM radio. I was alone, but no longer lonely. Class Excursions was written by Lech Blaine and performed by Toby Francis. That's all we've got time for today. Next episode, I wonder if you like pina coladas and walks in the rain. Well, fantastic, because you are going to love listening to the stories we have for you. Until then, lovers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.